Sorry, boss, but he and Miss Piggy are in his dressing room, and he told me he did not want to be disturbed. Piggy and Avery, are you nuts? Why, he wouldn't touch her with a ten-foot pole. You're right. He was touching her with his hands. He was also whispering sweet nothings into her ear. Nothings like... Hi-ho, and welcome once again to a feat of lunatic daring, the most sensational, inspirational, celebrational, muppetational podcast about Jim Henson the Muppets. My name is Chad. I'm here with my co-host, Nick Jackson. Nick, our long national nightmare is over. Everything we've wanted has come true. It's finally over. The Muppet Show has come to Disney+. Plus. Okay, I was about to cut in. I didn't want to be... Yeah, no, that's great. That's awesome. <laughs> Would you think I was talking about something else? No, no. In late January 2021? <laughs> In our time, we just found out that The Muppet Show, all five seasons, is coming to Disney+. Plus. When this releases, everyone will know that, and we'll have already watched it. So there's no reason for us to go too deep into it, but we just, uh, we just found out. Also, we're, you know, we have a new president now. Uh, how you doing? Uh, I'm looking forward to sleep. Sleep's going to be real nice, especially if it rains here like it's supposed to. I'm told when my kids leave the house, I'll get to sleep again. So... Only another 14, 15, 20 years to go. This is a feed of Lunatic Daring. We are a podcast about Jim Henson and the Muppets. I ask you, of course, to check us out on social media. We are at Lunatic Daring on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Um, and then also lunaticdaring.com, where you can find our most recent episodes, our bibliography, and our video watch list. We got, uh, I thought, two pretty good episodes to talk about tonight. Let's get things started. It's the Muppet Show with our special guest star, Miss Candace Bergen. Woo! Episode number 115, guest star Candace Bergen, produced in August of 1976, aired in November of 1976. So here's the thing about Candace Bergen. She kind of had to be on this show. One, she was a beautiful model and an actress and a famous woman about town, and she was really kind of on the rise. The other reason, though, was her brother, her brother was a puppet. Candace Bergen was born May 9th, 1946, in Los Angeles. Her mother was a model, and her father was Edgar Bergen, the world-famous ventriloquist of both radio and television, owner, operator, father, whatever you want to call him, of Charlie McCarthy who was the most famous puppet in America before Kermit the Frog. Growing up, people would actually sometimes call her Charlie McCarthy's sister, and she was not a fan of that. Actually, I get the feeling that there was a little animosity towards the puppet growing up for her. So she, uh, she used to appear on her father's show, on, on the Charlie McCarthy show as a young girl. Uh, after high school, she went to the University of Pennsylvania, but uh, dropped out after a couple of years and started modeling. She got into film. Her first film was a movie called The Group, which was a lesbian drama directed by Sidney Lumet. She was in The Sand Pebbles, which is a great Steve McQueen film, Academy Award winning film, I think. She was in Mike Nichols' film Carnal Knowledge, which means she was a co-star with our previous guest, Rita Moreno. She hosted the fourth episode of Saturday Night Live, which would have had, of course, Land of the Gorch on it. Now, from what we watched, I don't think they interacted at all. Actually, that fourth episode is kind of when the show really gelled. After The Muppet Show, she had roles in Richard Attenborough's uh, Academy Award-winning film, Gandhi, 
She was in the original Broadway cast of David Rabe's Hurley Burley. It's a great play. But it was in 1988 when she appeared on the CBS sitcom Murphy Brown when she made her kind of her own mark on pop culture. Murphy Brown was a sitcom about, about a working woman. It was on for 10 years. Uh, she played a journalist in it. it. It tackled some really difficult subject matter. She was an alcoholic. Uh, she was a single mother. In the later seasons, she battled breast cancer. The show itself got into a very, very famous feud with then-Vice President Dan Quayle, who called it out for it glamorizing the idea of single motherhood. And the show uh, kind of hit back. The American family and American values. This reporter has a unique perspective on the topic because in a recent speech, Vice President Quayle used me as an example of the poverty of values in this country and implied that I was a poor role model for our nation's youth. While some might argue that attacking my status as a single mother was nothing more than a cynical bit of election year posturing, I prefer to give the Vice President the benefit of the doubt. These are difficult times for our country, and in searching for the causes of our social ills, we could choose to blame the media, or the Congress, or an administration that's been in power for 12 years, or we could blame me. And while I will admit that my inability to balance a checkbook may have had something to do with the collapse of the savings and loan industry, I doubt that my status as a single mother has contributed all that much to the breakdown of Western civilization. But tonight's program should not be simply about blame. The vice president says he felt it was important to open a dialogue about family values, and on that point, we agree. Unfortunately, it seems that for him, the only acceptable definition of a family is a mother, a father, and children. And in a country where millions of children grow up in non-traditional families, that definition seems painfully unfair. Perhaps it's time for the vice president to expand his definition and recognize that whether by choice or circumstance, families come in all shapes and sizes. And ultimately, what really defines a family is commitment, caring, and love. She was nominated for seven Emmys for Best Actress and won five of them. So she told CBS, don't put me up for the award anymore. Her first husband, French film director Louis Mal, died in 1995 after 15 years of marriage. After that, she showed up in some movies and appeared on shows like Seinfeld, Law & Order. She did a couple episodes of House. She played uh, Lisa Edelstein's mother on that show, I think. And in 2005, she joined the cast of Boston Legal with um, you know James Spader and William Shatner, and she was on there for five seasons. Uh, more recently, she was in Noah Baumbach's Netflix film, The Meyerowitz Stories, alongside Adam Sandler and Emma Thompson. And now in 2018, they brought Murphy Brown back. They did a little reboot, like they're rebooting everything. But it only lasted 13 episodes, was not reviewed well, and, and got canceled. She has been married to New York philanthropist Marshall Rose since 2000. Now, usually I like to find a fun fact. I wouldn't consider this fact fun, but bear with me. In the 1960s, Candace lived with her boyfriend, Terry Melcher. Terry Melcher was a uh, record producer. And they lived at 10050 Cello Drive in Los Angeles. When they left that house, they sold it to a young Polish filmmaker named Roman Polanski and his young bride, Sharon Tate. Lore says that the Manson kids were sent to that house to murder Terry Melcher because he had refused to give Charles Manson a recording contract. He sent them to that house thinking it was still his house, and hence the Manson murders. 
that's been disputed. Again, not a fun fact, but an interesting fact about Candace Bergen is she was the previous occupant of what is now known as the Manson House. I've known who she was like my whole life. Like maybe not my whole life, but like I watched Murphy Brown, a good chunk of it uh, in the late 80s, early 90s. So I've always kind of been aware of who she was. Episode uh, 115, written by the same guys and uh, directed by the same guy. Refer to previous episodes. We open with... Our special guest star is the beautiful Miss Candace Bergen. And she's not just another pretty face besides being an actress. She's a top photographer, a writer, a world traveler, what you'd call a well-rounded person. (laughs) You can say that again. (laughs) Woo-woo, woo-woo. Listen, you clowns, we're not going to have any of those male chauvinist pig jokes while Miss Bergen is out here. It was an interesting note to start the the episode on, specifically because it seemed to reference her life outside of it or whatever she would have been known for at that point in time. Specifically her politics. Like, I I don't know if she was someone who was as outspoken as, say, Fonda was at that point in time. I don't think anybody's ever been as outspoken as Fonda. But no, I think she was known as being kind of a, a pretty hardcore feminist. You know, it's 1976. And then Piggy comes out to uh, protest the telling of any pig jokes. She finds them all offensive. And then Piggy points something out that is... A karma, dear. Did you know that every time we have a beautiful girl on the show, you forget about me? Now, he doesn't pay attention to her anyway. <laughs> he, he said as much. He's like... We could have a seal act on the show, Piggy, and I might forget about you. <laughs> he tries so desperately to hide his life from me. To calm Piggy down, I think for the first time that we've seen that Piggy gets the opening number. I haven't been tracking it. But like full on gets the opening number. Mm -hmm. And she sings a song called What Now My Love. The music is from Bolero, which is an instrumental, French instrumental piece uh, by Maurice Ravel. And the lyrics were kind of written by this guy named Carl Sigmund. It's been covered a million times by a million amazing artists, but its most famous version was uh, Elvis. Uh, Elvis Presley sang it in 1970, sang it live for over a billion people in 1973 in his Aloha, Aloha from Hawaii special, which was you know one of his kind of comeback specials. But it aired in 43 countries simultaneously. So in this one, Piggy is backed up by three whatnots who, throughout the number, start gradually turning into monsters. And getting significantly more aggressive. Like, when it starts, they look like a cross between treasure trolls and fraggles, and then... They do kind of look like fraggles, yeah. This is also one of the first singing performances by Oz as Miss Piggy. The previous time was another Somebody Done Me Wrong song, but that was a UK spot. So for American audiences, this was the first time we'd seen Miss Piggy really belt out a number. This was funny. Yeah, it was a nice opener. It was very piggy. What I also felt in in both of these episodes is they're really figuring her out. Oh, yeah. She she was definitely focal this week. Yeah, and they have figured out that she's a star. The backstage story in this is exactly like the backstage story of the Rita Moreno episode. It's just a series of running gags. Yeah. But it works better. I, I hope I'm not getting too far ahead. Candace doesn't really seem like a focal part of this episode. No. Like, and I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I think that's what does feel like the concrete divide between 115 and everything that came before 115 is... There's more internal coherence with the Muppets. Right. 
it wouldn't be fair to say that it was slapdash, but it was scrapped together, and it feels more cohesive now. I think she looks a little uncomfortable in this episode. So the running gag for backstage is Fozzie runs up to Kermit and says, wire for Kermit the Frog, wire for Kermit the Frog. Haven't we had this joke already? Wasn't that in the second episode? Remember? Yeah. So we've we've seen the wire hanger thing before, but the context was different. Ever since the uh, good grief, the comedian's a bear sketch, they have figured out how to make Fozzie and Kermit sing. And I think this episode is just great. So because what this episode is basically done is it's taken that running gag thing from the Rita Moreno thing with the telephone. And it's basically doing that with this, but with far more personality and far more humor and far more interplay between the characters. Well, there's also, I think this is the first, one of the first times we've seen Fozzie interact with Kermit where he's not looking for some sort of validation. Oh, Fozzie owns Kermit for most of this episode. Mm -hmm. He owns him. It's really cool. I think it's really funny. So then we get our first number with Candace that I loved. Cook me up some bacon and some beans And go out to the car and change the tire Wash my socks and sew my old blue jeans Come on, baby, you The way they set up expectation with the introduction, I wasn't sure how she was going to play with a song like this. And it's all very tongue-in-cheek, but she handled it, I would say, pretty well. Yeah, I think this is her best bit. There was a very clear power reversal, and the guy who's singing is... Letting us know all of the reasons we should know that he's less than admirable as a partner. Yeah, so you've got a, a, this hillbilly uh, that they call Slim, I think, but he's not really. He's a, he looks like a full-body uh, Muppet, which should freak me out, but he's not, actually. If you look at him, he's the size yeah. of a full-body Muppet, but there's... He's a scarecrow. But yeah, but Jim is operating his head, and then someone's using a rod to make his, his toe tap with the rhythm. Mm-hmm. But besides that, he's not. There's nobody in there. Put another log on the fire. It was the highest charting single from outlaw country artist Tompel Glazer, but it was written by Shel Silverstein. That makes sense. And he plays a hillbilly, and, and Candace plays his dutiful wife, and the song is about basically a man taking his wife for granted and treating her like crap. Now don't I let you wash the car on Sunday. Don't I warn you when you're getting fat. Ain't gonna take you fishing with me someday. Well, a man can't love a woman more than that. While thinking he's doing her favors by letting her do X, Y, and Z. I see that you're in the middle of something. Can you start this for me? You know, he's dating her sister. And ain't I always nice to your kid's sister? Don't I take her driving every night? So sit here at my feet, cause I like you and you're sweet. And you know it ain't feminine to fight. And so then the second half of it, though, then she starts to rebel. She starts to burn things. She's got her little thing, her, her, her duster, and she's knocking stuff off the hearth. She ends up ripping off of her, like, kind of prairie dress. She's wearing a, the feminine symbol on her t-shirt. And then she pulls out a shotgun. <laughs> and for a minute there, for a split second there, I thought she was going to blow his face off. I mean, it would be in style. I mean, this is kind of a Dixie Chicks video. <laughs> going to take your word for that. My favorite type of country music, actually, is scorned woman songs. Country women who have been spurned, but the songs themselves end up resorting to violence. I really like this one. She she then uses the shotgun to blow open the door and uh, leave her good-for-nothing son-of-a-bitch chauvinistic. Again, going with the theme, right? We started off with the male chauvinistic pig joke, right? And here we go. Mm-hmm. Here's, a, here's a skit about her rebelling against a male chauvinist. Come on, baby! It's Bill Black Black, and it's the 
then we go backstage. Fozzie runs up and he says, letter for Kermit the Frog, letter for Kermit the Frog. And then he gives him a letter R. And Kermit actually appreciates the joke. Mm-hmm. So then he tries it on Scooter. <laughs> Kermit tries the joke on Scooter and bombs. And I think the hardest I laughed the entire episode is Fozzie comes back into screen and starts laughing at Kermit for bombing. It's nice to see Fozzie in a position where he's not the underdog for once. So joyful. <laughs> so joyful that Fozzie got to one-up somebody and bag on somebody for, for bombing. After that, we have At The Dance. Uh, again, using this weird tango version. Not a whole lot happens in this. You got George and you got some pigs. Droop. Uh, oh, you do have, uh, you know, the, the, the I guess the funny bit at the end is George is dancing with um, Mildred. He's always mm-hmm. dancing with Mildred, right? Yeah, he's dancing with Mildred. He asks her if he, sh- he could pop the question. She says yes, and he pulls out a pin, and there's a yet again a puppet with a balloon for a head <laughs> comes by with a question mark on it, and he pops it. Then we have a really good panel discussion. The theme of this one is Sam Eagle is full of shit. It's Kermit. It's Candace playing a character named Miss Claire Cartwell. It's Miss Piggy. It's Mildred, and it's Sam the Eagle. And the subject is, does travel broaden the mind? And Candace is playing like a travel guide author. And our special guest panelist, Miss Clara Cartwell, well-known travel agent and author of the best-selling book, Europe on $5,000 a Day. No, no, no. It's called Europe on $50 a Day. The book itself, however, costs $5,000. And probably well worth it. Oh, yes, yes. Yes, pictures and everything, I bet. Mm. Oh, yes, the works. Mm, mm. The theme of it is that Sam is a moron. Yeah. He tries to present himself as a world traveler, and uh, they catch him on it. I did notice that Kermit introduced Sam as their resident grouch, which thus far is the closest thing I've heard to an actual job title. Piggy is played by Richard Hunt. Frank's also Sam, so someone else had to play Piggy. Mm-hmm for this one, because Sam is so prominent. But uh, yeah, Candace just plays like a, I don't know, a 1970s version of Rick Steves, probably just as stoned. <laughs> but you're right, it, it was a little tame, but I, as someone who um, veers towards one end of the culture war spectrum, I kind of like it when Sam gets the piss taken out of him. For example, I had a friend who never went anywhere, lived in the same town for over 30 years. She was so unsophisticated, she thought Marcello Mastriani was an Italian soup. (laughs) (laughs) You mean it isn't an Italian soup? And he calls himself a world traveler? (laughs) No, no, wait, I have been to restaurants where I've ordered Marcello Mastriani and I've gotten it. Really, what did you get? A swarthy, good-looking man sitting in a bowl. Our UK spot. This is one of the better ones I've seen. I think this is great. It's Rolf uh, at the piano, as it, as, it, as it usually is for the UK spots. And he's singing a song called It's Not Where You Start, which is from a 1973 critically loved but audience ignored Broadway musical called Seesaw. He has to sing it three times. It's not where you start. It's where you finish. It's not how you go, it's how you land. Then Scooter pops out and tells him that he basically he's got a vamp because he played it too fast, so he's got to play it again, but he's only got or like a minute left. It's not where you start, it's where you finish. It's not how you go, it's how you land. A hundred to one shot, they call him a klutz. Can't outrun the favorite, all he needs is the guts. 
Scooter comes out and says, my uncle loves this song. You got to play it again, but you only have 20 seconds. Hit it! It's not where you start, it's where you finish. It's not how you go, it's how you land. That's 15 seconds. You're the one shot, they call him a klutz. Cannot run the favorite, all he needs is a klutz. Your final return will not diminish. And you can find the dream of the drop. It's not where you start, it's where you finish. And I'm going to finish on time. I loved it. I love this one. This was a really good one. It's just really funny. Uh, it's Jim and Richard Hunt having a blast. Somebody come to the talk spot. It's a little boring-ish. Here's where I feel like I got the sense that she wasn't completely comfortable. Like they didn't really, they didn't really do anything with her. Like I, I wasn't sure if it was into if it was a result of her maybe not being comfortable because we've seen guests that were a little more wooden before, but. This in conjunction with the fact that the rest of the Muppet cast seems to start cohering makes me wonder if they just like shifted focus. She's trying to take Kermit's picture. She keeps telling him to be casual and be candid. And he just keeps doing more and more kind of performative poses. Jack, I want you to draw me like one of your French girls. And then Sweetums comes in and asks him, asks her if it's a good camera. And uh, she says, yeah, it's a great camera. And he eats it and says, I've had better. I thought there was one cute moment, though, when Kermit says, uh, make sure you get my good side, though. Well, I, which one? Which side is the good side? I think it's this side. It might be this side over here. <laughs> or maybe, uh, I don't know, what do you think? Well, I think, I think that uh, head on. Why don't we try one head on? Just, just head natural on? like that. Okay, yeah. While she is in it, and she is central to it, the focus is not on her, necessarily. She never seems to have much agency throughout the episode. Well, well she has agency. She, you saw her with that shotgun. That's fair. But outside of that, not as much. Anyone could have done this talk spot. Mm-hmm. It's not specific to her. If I was to go back to 1976, I still don't think people thought of her as a photographer. She's not Annie Leibovitz. She's not her Brits. To base the whole thing around her with a camera, it didn't feel, I don't know, it just didn't feel uh, unique to her. What is unique is the Swedish chef, who, <laughs> he's the guy that I want to make my Thai and Indian food. So the chef is just preparing a spicy sauce, and he, he makes the spicy sauce, he tries it, and it blows smoke out of his ears, and then he makes it hotter. <laughs> He's a man of principle. And eventually he blows his head off. I mean, he doesn't blow his head off, but he... He loses his hat, I think. He loses his hat, air and steam come out of his head, and he collapses uh, because the sauce he made is so hot. Pretty funny one. Then we get to kind of a long piece to a song called Look at That Face. This was probably one of my favorite bits of the episode. It's uh, a song from a musical called The Roar of the Grease Paint, The Smell of the Crowd. Candace is the model, but she's a model in like a, an art class. And there's a character named Andre. They call him Andre in like online and stuff, but like he's just a whatnot with a French accent. There's nothing. We're not going to see Andre again. But he's singing the song called Look at That Face while all of the, we're at, while a group of Muppets, we've got Mildred, Piggy, Gonzo, Bunsen, Blue Frackle, Green Frackle, and Animal are all painting her portrait. It felt like a really, really cohesive piece. You, you got to see the different paintings from the different Muppets' perspectives. Yeah. So. Seeing Piggy paint the model and just be painting herself, or Honeydew measuring the distance between her arms. Yeah, he made like a schematic. <laughs> it was it was a nice touch. Like a Da Vinci diagram or whatever. Obviously, Candace Bergen is a beautiful woman. I don't think she ever felt comfortable with that, though. What I liked about this was that this guy's singing a song about her beauty, but whenever it cut to a close-up of her, she was like making funny faces and stuff mm-hmm. to undercut that part of it, which I liked. She's not a non-presence in the episode, but she's definitely not one that sort of owns her, her time on The Muppet Show. She doesn't talk in this sketch either. She's got two full sketches she doesn't even speak in. 
And the punchline to this one is he goes around, like you said, and he looks at everyone's paintings of her, and um, they're all different. Although they're not that different. Like, Mildred's looks like Mildred. Piggy's looks like Piggy. Green Frackles looks like a green Frackle. <laughs> then he gets to Animals, and Animals is a Jackson Pollock. Mm-hmm. To be fair, Animals is probably the best work of the bunch. Oh, yeah. His is vibrant and original. His could have been in an art gallery. Animal! That does not look like her. He takes a paintbrush and he goes and he paints uh, Candace on her. Starts like just putting paint on her, which I thought she did a really good job of keeping a straight face. Notes for Kermit the Frog. Notes for Kermit the Frog. Oh, are you Kermit the Frog? Yes, Fozzie, I am Kermit the Frog. Notes for you. Uh... Uh... <laughs> G sharp. Sung by three frogs. These frog prince frogs, they're getting a workout. Mm-hmm. Not a lot, but they show up every once in a while. Now we get to Veterinarian's Hospital. Nick, did you notice what is happening in the very beginning of this episode of Veterinarian's Hospital? Was this the one where Piggy was taking a nice deep inhale, or am I confusing that with 116? Piggy is huffing laughing gas. (laughs) That was the one. (laughs) And then she looks at the camera and she's like, oh, I'm not supposed to do that. Veterinarian's Hospital starts with Piggy literally huffing laughing gas. And then getting caught by the camera, there is some messed up stuff going on at this hospital. It's gone to the dogs. The whole premise of this one is Behemoth, who's this big kind of orange guy. I guess we should have talked about him before. He's not in a whole lot, but we've seen him before. Has a sore throat, and it turns out he has a frog in his throat, and guess who the frog is? Clearly it's Robin. So Kermit pops out. Again, this is an episode where Kermit's kind of on the ropes the whole time. That's happened before, though. That was the, uh, the Sandy Duncan one he didn't know the banana joke. And then there's the one, though, where everyone was talking about how great Peter Ustinoff is. Great veterinarian's hospital. He, he, Kermit does threaten to cancel the skit at the end. Mm-hmm. Everybody go back and keep a lookout for Piggy huffing laughing gas. <laughs> then we're backstage and uh, Fozzie believes he has the perfect topper for his uh, running gag. This is interesting. He comes out and he says, flower for Kermit the Frog. Flower for Kermit the Frog. He then just pours a bag of flour on Kermit's head. Probably the least funny of the least clever of them, right? But then Piggy shows up. And Piggy is not happy that Fozzie has done this to Kermit. But what's interesting is Fozzie is played by Frank Oz. So for this little bit, they had to have Richard Hunt do Piggy. Normally, this backstage stuff, they've pretty much settled into Frank playing Piggy when it came to the Kermit stuff. But Richard Hunt is playing her. And so when she punches Fozzie, there's no karate chop. There's no hi-ya, she just decks him. It's a little disconnected, though, because it's a, it's a Richard Hunt portrayal of Piggy that doesn't always feel right. This one felt a little mean, actually, pouring the flower on his head felt a little mean, as opposed to the other jokes. It's been escalating in that direction. So then we get to Candace's only musical number, and she sings the song Friends, which is mostly known as Bette Midler's theme song. I'm going to be honest with you, I, I mostly know her from Hocus Pocus. That's absolutely legitimate. <laughs> Uh, you know, she was in the movie Beaches and she's been, she's been in a lot of movies and stuff, but she does these one woman shows. I don't know if she's done any in a while, but these like Vegas, well, obviously not in the last year. And this is kind of her theme song, kind of like, uh, my way with Sinatra's theme song. And it's just her singing it with a bunch of Muppets. Again, it's, it's another one of those things that we've talked that we've seen a lot of recently, right? Which is guest singing and Muppets kind of gathered around them. This is where I thought she looked super uncomfortable. Yeah. She just did not feel organic. She does a fine job with the song. She's not a singer, but she does a a completely passable job with the song. Because you have to have friends, you see, Gonzo. 
feelings oh so strong Yes, you've got to have friends To last that whole day long But once she's kind of singing with the Muppets and supposed to be hugging the Muppets and singing with them and stuff, she just doesn't feel into it. With this particular kind of sketch, it's sort of like the uh, the talking houses or the dance spot. I Obviously, they're not going to want her to look wooden, but like I don't know how much of that's curated or how much they're trying to go for a specific aesthetic with these scenes. Right. Because they don't encourage a lot of dynamism in themselves. She just, I don't know, she, it just feels awkward. It's an awkward number. But then right after it, she has what I think is her most human moment that I would bet money on being improv for some reason, Kermit, well, we know why, but Kermit has allowed Fozzie <laughs> to wrap up the show. Okay. <clears throat> now, let's thank our special guest star, Miss Candace Bergen. Yeah, 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 yeah. Thanks, Fozzie. I had a terrific time. It's just that I'm a little worried that maybe Kermit's upset with you. You know what I mean? Oh, no, 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 no. He loves running gags. Oh, yeah. Uh, the pro- pie for Fozzie the Bear. Pie for Fozzie the Bear. Are you Fozzie the Bear? And Fozzie looks right in the camera and goes, No. Because <laughs> he knows what's coming. Nice deadpan. No. Good. I got a pie for you anyway. And then Kermit hits him in the face with a pie. No, yes. And she kind of ducks. And she knows it's coming. But not a whole lot gets on Fozzie's face. So then Kermit does it again and hits him a second time. Harder. And, and half of the pie sprays off and hits Candace. I think that all just happened. Oh, yeah, that was absolutely organic. It was planned that he comes up and he hits him in the face with the pie, and that's the end of it. But Jim was like, oh, that wasn't enough. I didn't get enough on his face, and he hits him again. And then Candace gets hit. She cracks up. Fozzie's screaming at him like, look what you did. It was kind of the funniest moment of the episode. Yeah, it was a nice way to cap it, for sure. I really like this episode. I think we've made it clear. I don't think she's the most dynamic guest star. It was a solid one. I think it's a move in the right direction. But yeah, she didn't really integrate with it. I think her funniest bit, other than the ending there, was probably the put another log on the fire, which was all just straight up physical. or Not even physical, situational humor. Mm-hmm. But this one has a lot of great sketches in it. And do you know what it didn't have? There are no houses. <laughs> Are we done with the houses? I don't know yet, but no houses this week. The Muppet Show number 115 with Candace Bergen finished filming on August 13th, 1976. The next episode, 116 with funny man Avery Schreiber, wouldn't begin filming for another six weeks. This was unusual, especially for a show that moved at ludicrous speed. While the crew and much of the cast was on hiatus, Henson, Brillstein, and ATV president Abe Mandel got no such break. They were still on the clock. The episodes we've covered thus far were basically created in a vacuum. The only people that had seen the show were on the inside, people with a vested interest, and the British film crew, the closest thing they had to an audience. The Muppet performers took pride in the moments when their Yankee nonsense got chuckles out of the veteran grips and cameramen, whose investment in the show ended promptly at 8pm every working day, when they would shut off the lights whether the Muppets had finished the day's work or not. It was time for the Muppet show to leave the safety of its studio and editing bays, and be released upon the world. Brillstein and Mandel had sold the show to a whopping 162 stations in the US which meant almost 95% of American homes would have access to their syndicated puppet show. Soon the show would be at the mercy of critics and, more importantly, the audience. Would they tune in? Would they like what they saw? 
Jim flew back to New York a few days after wrapping the Bergen episode, stopped by CTW for a week's worth of shooting on Sesame Street, and then set off on the most beloved tradition in Hollywood, the, uh, the press tour. He went from coast to coast, doing Carson and Griffith and the Dinosaur show. He called reporters and radio stations and no doubt told the same stories and made the same jokes every time. People were already getting excited for the show. The Muppets had been famous for a while. Hell, their first Tonight Show was more than 20 years ago, but now it was their turn to be the hosts instead of the guests, to bring us into their world, not needing to justify their existence and ours. Most stations picked episode 105 with Rita Marino to air first. If you listen to us talking about that one, you probably know we think that seems like a good call. On Monday, September 20th, 1976, at 7.30 p.m., The Muppet Show made its American debut. Most of the reviews were positive, some very much so, but a few high-profile ones, like Variety, were less than enthused. It debuted well, but wasn't a smash, but uh, Jim wasn't worried. Three days later, he returned to England to finish filming the season's back nine. I have no idea who your guest star is. Like so many other people that have been involved with the show, he has been in things that I just didn't recognize, or that I've seen that I have, that I just didn't recognize him in. The first thing I have to draw attention to, and I don't think I've I've really relied on this before this, is he looks like a cross between Paul F. Tompkins and Benny Hill, and I couldn't unsee it all episode. You're not wrong. You're not wrong. He was born in Chicago back in 1935. We're, we're just going to let this cat out of the bag now. He was a close associate of Jack Burns. They mention it in the episode. Jack Burns is the writer for the Muppet Show, or one of the main writers for the Muppet Show in this first season. Yeah, at this point, the head writer. They met at the Second City in Chicago. They recorded a bunch of comedy albums, and they were on a number of different television shows. Apparently, he was really well known for his Doritos commercials in the 70s and 80s. I still need to track those down. I think I remember those. I can barely remember what Doritos were like before they were 3D, and even then, after that, it just seems like they're permanently associated with Taco Bell. They tasted the same. Uh, he was a regular guest star on Chico and the Man, which is a title I've heard, but I can't remember where. It's a TV show starring Freddie Prinze, the father of Freddie Prince Jr., of uh, Scooby-Doo mm. fame. I love that he's best known for Scooby-Doo now. <laughs> Uh, I guess, I mean, what, she's all that. He's the voice of uh, Kanan Jarrus on Star Wars Rebels. I still need to see those. Married to my favorite superhero, Buffy the Vampire Slayer. He was also in the Concord Airport 79, um, mm-hmm. which I did randomly see when I was a kid. I don't remember much of it. He was also in Robin Hood Men in Tights. Who was he in Robin Hood? He was the tax assessor. Okay. With a lot of these TV roles, whether he was a regular fixture or just there for an episode, but he had at least one appearance on Get Smart and the Harlem Globetrotters Popcorn Machine as Mr. Evil. Okay. I don't know what that is, but I I, I want to see it. I didn't realize Ben Vereen had a television series, but apparently he was a regular performer on that. That ties into next week. Yeah. One episode of The Dukes of Hazzard, uh, Fantasy Island, The Pound Puppies, <laughs> randomly, and The Smurfs. It seems like a lot of these... And a pup named Scooby-Doo. A lot of these actors end up doing a lot of voiceover work. I'm noticing that, too. A lot of them, like Ruth Buzzy did, too. She had a long rap sheet for voiceover work, too. That was... If you think about it, though, like, back in the 80s, like, Transformers the movie, Unicron, the big... uh... Was that Frank Welker? 
No, the well, it, Frank Welker is Megatron, but Unicron, the big monster, yeah. the big planet that eats other planets, is played by Orson Welles. They probably paid a pretty penny, I guess. He passed on January 7th, 2002, of a heart attack. Since he passed, the Avery Schreiber Theater had been founded, or has been founded in North Hollywood, and it changed its name to the Avery Schreiber Playhouse in 2013. He's an interesting guy. In the same sense that we said Harvey Corman was a very 70s comedian, he he definitely feels like that too, but I think he integrates into the show a bit better. He's also got kind of a borscht belt comedian thing going on too. He makes some giddish jokes, I think, in the episode. But yeah, him and Jack Burns were like a comedy team, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I didn't know anything about him. I'm definitely going to go look for him in Men in Tights, though. He seems like a character actor, and I guess it shouldn't be surprising that he was just in stuff that you'd seen. Yeah. Episode 116. Produced uh, September 1976. Aired in December of 76 in the UK, but didn't air till April of 77 in uh, the States. The most important thing about this episode, though, is that it is the first episode filmed after The Muppet Show had hit the air. This episode opens with Kermit introducing... Dr. Teeth and the Electric Mayhem. We like to think of our group as being able to play more than hard rock. So here's an old favorite for some of you moms and pops. It's called, and we'll play tenderly. An old kind of jazz standard. They also performed this exact bit on the Mike Douglas show earlier that year. Very popular in kind of Latin jazz. It's been done by Nat King Cole, Rosemary Clooney, and a lot of people have probably heard it because uh, Louis Armstrong and Ella Fitzgerald did it on one of their famous duets. It's meant to be, as the song implies, a tender ballad. But what does the Electric Mayhem do with it? Commit Mayhem. They make it punk. Like, it reminds me of those, like, punk cover, like like the Sex Pistols cover of My Way. Even later on when Limp Bizkit did George Michael. <laughs> you know, it just, it, it, it was like a hard rock, punk rock cover of Tenderly, and it was awesome. The evening breeze, caress the trees, Tenderly, yeah. The trembling trees, embrace the breeze, Tenderly. Then you... And I gave one during five and lost in a sigh where we Dr. Teeth introduced the song. I think that's the first time he's done that. You don't really hear him talk much. Not before this, at least. You will later, but not before this. So he flat out introduces the song. Usually they leave it up to Floyd. Mm -hmm. This is the first time Dr. Teeth really asserted himself as this is my band. Your arm, open wide and close. So the backstage story in this is kind of messed up. Piggy has decided she loves Kermit. Kermit doesn't quite love her back. So she's decided to recruit Scooter, and by recruit, I mean threaten him with violence. There's a weird degree of self-awareness in Piggy at this point, though, because up until now, it seemed like she was just like, oh, of course Kermit loves me. How could he not? But now she wants to make him, and um, that always goes well. So she, she corners Scooter and says, I want to make Kermit jealous, so you need to tell him that Avery Schreiber is madly in love with me. Oh, you want me to lie? <laughs> just do it. <laughs> Pretty standard sitcom plot. 
But she literally says that she will karate chop you until the only thing you'll be able to go for is down for the count! Uh, one jealous frog coming up. <laughs> There's no, uh, you know, carrot the stick with Piggy. It's all just stick. Playground rules. So, uh, but that's going to be our subplot is that Piggy is trying to make Kermit jealous again, just like with Peter Ustinov. Maybe it's just a function of the 70s. Maybe it's just the women are all still pretty attractive and the men all look like schlubs to me. <laughs> so far, we've had the episode with Peter Ustinov where she's all in love with him. And in this one where Kermit's supposed to be jealous of Avery Schreiber, I'm like, you can't save that for like Roger Moore or something? <laughs> I mean, I, I feel like Schreiber in this case is kind of a warm body because we don't really see them interact for a minute. No. Because they, they do that. They flip whether it's, if it's a male host, Piggy might get a little bit more affectionate. If it's a female host, Kermit might be a bit more affectionate. Piggy would be a lot more affectionate. Yeah. Kermit will just be macking. Probably even a Corton. So then we get our first appearance of Avery. This is where we learn that he's probably not a singer because his first bit is a comedy routine. Uh, the first thing I noticed is Kermit is wearing his trench coat, mm -hmm. which he wore a lot on Sesame Street, but only usually wore when he was reporting from Coosbane. Mm -hmm. So basically, Avery Schreiber and Sweetums have a rap battle. That's what I wrote down. Yeah, it's not too far. Yeah. This might as well just be 8 Mile. Look! Now while he stands tough, notice that this man did not have his hands up. The three world's got you gassed up. Now who's afraid of the big bad horse? One, two, three, into the four. One pop, two pop, three pop, four. Four pop, three pop, two pop, one. Your pop, he's pop, no pop. None. Does that mean that Sweetums goes on to be Falcon? Yeah, that would make, make Sweetums Papa Doc, which would make him Anthony Mackie. Yeah. <laughs> that works out. That works out. So it's, a, it's supposed to be a gladiator match between Sir Avery of Macho. Not, I always say the Macho, but Sir Avery of Macho. So apparently he's from a place called Macho. Versus the Monster of the Moors, played by Sweetums. Avery realizes that he is not going to beat this thing with swords because it's way bigger than him. So he decides to challenge it to a battle of insults. Give me your best shot, fat stuff. Fat stuff? You call me fat stuff? Your mother wears open-toed combat boots. <laughs> Sir Avery opened with an old standard there. Let's see how the monster answers. This is the Corman sketch where he's trying to wrangle the circus animal, but it's done much more cleanly. It's our guest star interacting with uh, one of the larger-than-life-size Muppets. But he's actually interacting with the Muppet, though. He's grandiose, he's bombastic, but he's... Sweetums gets his attention. They're playing with each other. They're playing back and forth. The Harvey Corman one was more him doing a shtick mm -hmm. with Thig as a prop. Um, or is it Thog? <laughs> I can never remember which is Thig and which is Thog. Editor's note. <sighs> of course it's Thog. I I'm sorry, it was... It was really late. As opposed to this, where Sweetums is a genuine scene partner. Mm -hmm. I liked how they... When one of them landed an insult, the other acted like they were physically wounded. Nobody likes him. No! Oh! 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 As a matter of fact, your dog doesn't like you. Oh! In fact, I doubt if you even have a dog. I, oh, I had a dog. You had a dog. What happened to him? I, I ate him. Why'd you eat him? Because he didn't like me. I give up. You win. Look at that, folks. It looks like it's all over now. Yeah. That was a nice touch. When you and Burns had a comedy team, yes. well, you were my favorite comedy team, well, second favorite of all time. What do you mean, second favorite? Who was first? Starsky and Hutch! <laughs> oh, look at that. Cerebri is, Cerebri is, is hit bad. He's going down. 
It looks it looks like I friends, I think it's going to be a draw. He references Burns and Schreiber. I did like the end though when he said that uh, the joke didn't beat me, his breath did. Mhm. And then Sweetums looks up at the camera and goes, "So I win a lot. But it's a lonely life." <laughs> I was like, oh, "Wow. All right. That was a dark little tag at the end there. Maybe Burns is more comfortable writing for Schreiber. I, I guarantee you Burns is writing like all the Schreiber stuff. Oh, yeah. Avery Schreiber's not a huge star. And I would say even on the scale of the stars we've had this season, he's still on the lower end. But a lot of this first season, remember, they, they're just getting friends. Friends of Bernie Brillstein, clients of Bernie Brillstein, people they know, people who they know, they know, they know, they know. Friends of friends of friends of friends. So we get a very classic Muppet Lab sketch next. Can we just talk about the fact that the metal gorilla face looks a lot like Donkey Kong? Like, it's unsettling how much it looks like Donkey Kong? And also a hippo? Yes, it looks like Hungry Hungry Donkey Kong. <laughs> uh, so Bunsen, still no beaker yet, we'll get there. Bunsen is showing off his gorilla detector. He has probably my favorite line in the episode, which is... And how many people do you know whose vacations were ruined because they were eaten by undetected gorillas? Well, no more of that good stuff. And the joke, of course, is that behind him, a gorilla shows up and starts trashing the lab. And Bunsen is so confident in his machine that he says, that, of course, is not an actual gorilla. Because <laughs> if that was a gorilla, the alarm would be going off. Now, I couldn't find anything about who was playing the gorilla. Maybe John Lovelady would be my guess. He did a lot of stuff like that. I'm not sure, but it's not. I couldn't find any credits for who was in the gorilla suit. It's a very funny Muppet Lab sketch where Bunsen has such faith in his device that he can't possibly believe that this gorilla that's looking him right in the face. That creature is not a gorilla. If he were a gorilla, the lights would flash and the bell would ring. Yes, Muppet technology is wonderful. It tells us that we are not seeing a gorilla smash a cabinet. So I know scientifically that I am not being eaten by a gorilla. He can't possibly believe that he lost the election. <laughs> I mean, he can't possibly believe that uh, that's actually a gorilla. We go backstage and Kermit asks Scooter to go get Avery. Um, and he says, I can't do that because he's with Miss Piggy. And he's trying to sow seeds of jealousy. He's doing Piggy's plan. And he has a really kind of steamy line where he says, where Kermit says he wouldn't touch her with a 10 foot pole. And he says, he's not. He's touching her with his hands. It's a good comeback. Yeah. I was like, wow. All right. Scooter tells Kermit some of the sweet nothings that he's whispering to her, which is a... It does make me wonder how Scooter would have heard the sweet nothings. That's what's messed up, is Scooter's making them up. So what is Scooter saying to Kermit? There's a window into, into Scooter's soul right there. <laughs> we have a bit with Avery and Fozzie that kind of feels like a Charlie Chaplin movie. This was probably one of my favorite ones of the episode, though. It's very well done. Fozzie's... It's nice to see Fozzie in a space where he is doing more, right? It's not just him and Statler and Waldorf. Avery's coming in, he's playing security guard, ostensibly at a museum, and he goes in, and if you're paying attention, you could see the Muppet moving inside of the painting frame a little bit, but you see Fozzie there, and Avery's laying down his lunch, and Fozzie's, like, incrementally picking up different pieces of it or dropping it, and it's it's all physical comedy, it's very well choreographed, the reaction time is all very, like, it's it's solid. They eventually end up inside of the same painting, and then Rolf comes in, and they start trying to steal his food while keeping up with the same conceit of making sure that they don't look like a moving painting whenever he looks at them directly. They're kind of like a Hogwarts painting. Yeah. It feels kind of Chaplin-esque. It feels kind of Marx Brothers. If you remember the when Kermit was in the mirror with his doppelganger. The wind-up Kermit. That was also a spring, the uh, Sweet Nothings. Bootsy Collins Kermit. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. We're going to forget Collins. that. That's right. That's right. Pimp Kermit. <laughs> 
You know, I had a bit part in a movie last week. A bit part? Yeah, I bit someone. <laughs> At the dance, we're back to the normal music. And uh, man, all I have to say is this. Animal, you marry that girl. Here's the thing, though. Here's where that felt kind of weird. She's not into meditation. She's into sedation. <laughs> like, don't get me wrong. She started reciprocating with Animal. I'm like, okay, this is cool. And then the second that they're talking about sedation, I'm like, is she fully aware? There's a couple ways to read that. So we got Rolf is dancing with a girl and there's some pigs. But then Animal is dancing with his normal girl. He asks her if she wants to boogie. And uh, his idea of boogieing is dipping her so far down that she hits her head on the ground. But then she also does the same thing to him several times. And he says, thank you. And then the guru, who's never in these scenes, but they have him in there just because of the reference. I noticed nothing bothers you. Are you into meditation? No! Sedation! <laughs> I don't know. Does that mean she's drunk? I don't think... I mean, you don't usually look at drunk as being sedated. Concussed? <laughs> like, <she's, laughs> like, she just likes being concussed? She's had so many head injuries that it doesn't bother her anymore. <laughs> I'm going to choose to believe until proven otherwise that this is Animal's soulmate. Yeah. And that they have a very healthy, consensual relationship that involves knocking each other over and banging their heads into things. Which, if that's consensual between two adult pieces of felt, who am I to say? Come on, Animal, marry that girl. UK spot with some old faces. The thing that gave me pause on this was I was wondering if the dog that had played Lassie had died. Well, there's so many dogs that played Lassie, so yes. <laughs> that makes it better. No, it doesn't. Uh, I, and I remember Rolf having, like, a huge crush on Lassie, but it was still... It almost seemed like a eulogy of sorts, or a requiem. If I'm right, then that's one of the darkest sketches we've seen up to this point on the Muppets. It is a direct throwback to the Jimmy Dean show in, in Rolf's obsession with Lassie. It's Rolf, Muppy, Baskerville, and then for some reason, because they didn't have another dog... <laughs> apparently, Catgut, singing a song called May You Always, which was a song by the McGuire Sisters, which were a pop trio of actual sisters. May you always walk in sunshine Slumber warm when night winds blow May you always live with laughter For a smile becomes your soul and yeah, so they're singing basically a love song to Lassie. This is the most I've ever liked Baskerville. <laughs> well, well, one, he's played, he's played by Jerry Nelson. Mm -hmm. And so he can actually sing. If you remember back in the Purina commercials, like Jim was doing them with a real kind of whiny voice. Mm -hmm. And he just wasn't very interesting. But I think he's pretty, uh, I liked him in this. But it's just them singing a song. But it's a nice little throwback to Jimmy Dean and, and Rolf's love of Lassie. Cat gut seems a little out of place. question about this talk spot. Piggy's still trying to make Kermit jealous by, like, fawning all over Avery, right? And first of all, she tells him, You can call me by my real name, which few men have called me. Pigat. 
Pigasius. Pigasius? Mm, it's from the Greek meaning river of passion. <laughs> it's probably not true. No. Although it would be funny if that was the river that Achilles decided to try and fight. Potami Tal Pathos. Not quite the same. It starts with a P, at least. She's still trying to make Kermit jealous, and it totally works. It does, and it's weird, because up until this point... Kinda. There's that hard-elicited response, but we've seen Kermit be, be, be more circumspect, not just with Piggy, but with other people trying to make him jealous. The rendition of him being green showed a, a more grounded Kermit, and I understand that it's the bit, and this is what, where we're supposed to land... But it almost feels like he crumbled a little too easy. I know what's been going on behind my back, but Miss Piggy is my girl. You're just a guest on this show, just passing through town. She loves me and she's going to have dinner with me tonight after the show, Miss Piggy, you and me alone. He's faking it because of the information we find out later. So, but, but Kermit freaks out. He basically asks Piggy out on a date and he goes insane. And then at the end, Piggy tries to kiss Avery. His last name is Schreiber. He's a, he's a, he's a man of the Jewish persuasion. So he says, my family has never touched a pig let alone put their lips on one. What he's saying is, I can't kiss you, you're not kosher. And she gets really offended and hits him. With the weird exception of this episode for this to happen in the same episode, she usually seems a bit short-sighted. I mean, this isn't going to be the first time that Piggy pulls off some backstage machinations to get Kermit to love her. This may be the first of dozens of times. <laughs> we got another four and a half seasons of Piggy desperately trying to get the frog to love her. I'm calling him Flipperface the entire time. Piggy loves Kermit, but she also wants to be a star. Part of her attraction to Kermit, part of her love for Kermit, part of her adulation of Kermit is that he's the one who can put her on stage. You know, she's always kissing up to him and whatever, but then she'll be like, do I get a number this week? So there's also a calculating professional element to her affection. And I think Kermit knows that. So I think there's a more complicated relationship there. She may not know it, but part of her is using him. I mean, because if you think about the last episode, she comes out and she's like, you, you always pay attention to the female guest stars. You don't love me. And he's like, fine, you can have the opening number. Mm -hmm. Pretty smooth, right? Well, she also leveraged uh, losing that guest star that week, too. So Yeah. And she did it on stage in front of everyone. So there's a bit of calculation there. but So then uh, poor Sam Eagle comes out and introduces Wayne and Wanda again. I had noticed right before the curtain opens, though, he goes, get it right. And they come out and sing Some Enchanted Evening, which is from South Pacific. The same song that Bert sang with Connie Stevens in episode 102. Some enchanted evening, you may meet a stranger, you may meet a stranger. <laughs> and then he's eaten by Gorgon Heap, who uh, apparently thought he said eat and not meet a stranger. And Wanda's upset about it. And of course, their sketch goes to hell. At least this time, Wayne gets it. Yeah. Wanda's been on the short end of the stick too many times, so having Wayne take it is okay. And now, Veterinarian's Hospital, the continuing story of an orthopedic surgeon who's gone to the dogs. This week, when we find Piggy, she's just, she's plucking her eyelashes with some forceps. Innocent enough. But then we come over and what is Dr. Bob doing? Tossing back a drink. <laughs> the exact same way that Piggy was a couple weeks ago. Rolf has got a like a wine glass, and he like drains it, looks at the camera, and tosses it over his shoulder before he gets down to his patient. It wasn't all for kids, folks. <laughs> this one involves a chicken. I, I thought this one was actually kind of a weak veterinarian's hospital. It, it wasn't like the, the bit was pretty straightforward, oscillating between different types of fowl. It was all right. I didn't think it was bad. It was just, I just didn't think it was as funny as, uh, definitely not as funny as last week's. Or last episodes. It was just a lot of chicken puns and wordplay and stuff. I just, I, I didn't think it had 
I think the better veterinarians hospitals have a little bit of an arc to them, like a little bit. Now, there's going to be times over the course of this show where Kermit and Piggy are kind of mean to each other. And this is a little mean, uh, but it's not. Like, Kermit reveals to Piggy, Scooter told me it was all a trick. So does that mean that he was faking it during the talk spot? I think so, right? There's a good chance of that. There's also the possibility that Scooter decided to gloat after Kermit mentioned that he had. I think it means that, like, Kermit already knew that in the talk spot. So that's why he was so like, Piggy's my girl, and he's like playing into it. It's possible. But then that's so damn mean of him. Nine times out of ten, I'm going to probably sympathize with Kermit, because so much of that dynamic is just her forcing her attention on him, and him being like, I'm kind of not down. Also, I've got work to do. I'm still not down. Also, I've got work to do. I'm not saying she doesn't bring it on herself. We're going way deep into the psychology of the Muppets, but what the hell else are we doing? But to say, like, to literally say the words, Piggy's my girl, and I'm taking her out tonight, like, that's... All she wants to hear. Well, that and, you know, you have the opening number tonight. But besides that, if he knew ahead of time, it's a little mean. But as you pointed out, though, he caves so quickly and it seems so out of character for him to say the the thing about Piggy being his girl that I feel like it kind of has to be that he already knew. Either way, for uh, being a traitor, Scooter gets a couple of karate chops. I think he got those karate chops just for being Scooter. Like, Scooter is the person you don't go to to be surreptitious. I think she went to Scooter for the plan because she knows that he really doesn't have much of a moral compass at this point. (laughs) (laughs) Who around here would be willing to betray Kermit? And also, who around here is such a little pipsqueak that I can threaten? And so, you know, Scooter pays for his betrayal. (laughs) Nice punt. Then we have Fozzie's comedy act, uh, where he, of course, is getting heckled. And Avery joins him on stage. Avery talks to Fozzie about the banana in the ear gag and that his old comedy partner would never let him do it. His old comedy partner, of course, being Jack Burns, who in all likelihood is actually writing the scene. Mm-hmm. Fozzie puts a banana in his ear and it doesn't get any laughs. And he's like, oh, maybe he was right. And then Avery puts it in his ear and he gets a tons of laughs. Why is it that when I did it, you didn't laugh, but when Avery does it, you go crazy? Oh, it's his pace. His timing. His delivery. His ear. <laughs> you see, Jack, I told you it would work. So he's talking directly to Jack Burns who is probably on set, and who also probably wrote it. And Statler and Waldorf are very, uh, they, they do this a lot, right? They rag on Fozzie, but they love the guest host. Mm-hmm. I think Statler and Waldorf are just kind of like star effers. They just come to the Muppet Show. They hate the show, but they like seeing famous people. It's the only thing I can think of is why they keep coming. I mean, we saw it two episodes ago. It's, it's fine. It's already a familiar structure, and we're going to see it again. Yeah. Fozzie bombing, and then someone coming out to support him in his battle against the hecklers. This episode must have come up about 10 seconds short, because then we have the Muppet news flash of him saying there is no news tonight, which was reused from episode 105. It's the exact same piece of film. And then our big musical finale is Avery singing a song called Make a Song that's credited as being written by him, because it's just a bunch of, what would you call it? Just noises? Like a nonsense song? A scat? It's like scatting, kind of? Comedy scatting? There's a song... That's not sung in English, but sounds like it's sung in English. I think it's just like this. I, I wish I remember what the title of it was. I think it was originally written by someone from Italy. And they... Oh, I've seen that video. I've seen that video. Yes. This song is by Adriano Celentano. I have no idea how to pronounce the title. But it, it makes me think of that a little bit. Also, it, so I've, I've made the comparison to Paul F. Tompkins, and I've made the comparison to Benny Hill. There's also a little bit of a Cheech Marin in there. 
But when yeah, he's looking little... directly at the camera, it reminds me of Weekend at Bernie's, specifically the scenes where Bernie doesn't have glasses <laughs> on. <laughs> because, like, there's yeah, just... no. It's not quite a smile on Bernie's face, but, like, this, like, I'm dehydrated but keeping my lips in facial expression sometimes. You ain't wrong. <laughs> I'm looking at a picture of him right now, and I could totally see, you know, Andrew McCarthy <laughs> dragging him around the beach. <laughs> So Avery sits over the guitar and he sings this song that's just a bunch of kind of nonsense noises. He's joined by a handful of Kuzbanians. There's a bird there named Mel, who was the, um, I don't know if you remember the, the bet in the Sex and Violence pilot, but the, there were the birds that all had a different thing that they said. I do remember that. And he's the one that said, oh boy. The weird, like, mating dance thing. There is one character in here that is kind of a new face. I didn't bring him up, but uh, Shaky Sanchez is the character. He's off to the right of the frame. He's kind of this purple Muppet with, like, orange hair that always looks like he's freaked out. He's going to actually show up a, a couple of times. He's played by Dave Goals in this one. He gets tossed back and forth. He's not really a huge character, but you do see him a handful of more times as the show goes on. This, this is technically his first appearance. He actually looks a little like a Fraggle. I don't think it's like the best closing number, but it's a combination musical number and comedy bit. Kind of on brand. Yeah, it works for him. But again, and I hate to beat a, a dead horse. I hate to beat any horse, honestly. They're majestic animals. It's just the guest star playing a song with Muppets around them. Yeah, I feel like they're in a little bit of a rut for their closing numbers. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Sometimes it's Lena Horne singing off into the distance in a way, and you're like, wow, you're not interacting at all. That Kubrick stare is going to haunt me for a while. Like... <laughs> <laughs> I feel really bad saying that. I am in a world of sh Then we have the ending where Kermit says goodnight. Avery comes back out. Boy, Miss Piggy has a bad temper, doesn't she, huh? Oh, listen, don't worry. I can handle Miss Piggy. You know, she's just putty in my hands. I say jump, she says how high. Mm. I crack the whip, she jumps through the hoop. You open your mouth, my fist goes south. <laughs> I love to see a man in control, Kermit. <laughs> we'll see you all next time on The Muppet Show. <laughs> I liked him. I didn't know anything about him, but I liked him. He seemed more comfortable. He's a very unassuming presence. Like, he's funny, uh, and he's a little over the top and broad, which you want to be, but he's also kind of, I don't know, he didn't overpower anything, though. He fit in with the show. Yeah. I don't think I like this episode as much as the first one, just because of the quality of the actual sketches. It's, uh, he just seems like he was a funny guy. Next time, Hugga. Hugga? So our next couple episodes, you mentioned him earlier, uh, is episode 117 with Ben Vereen, and then episode 118 with funny woman Phyllis Diller, someone I've always been aware of my entire life. The name sounds familiar. Check us out on social media, at Lunatic Daring, you know, all that stuff. I'm Chad. I'm Nick. And we'll talk to you next time. Feet of Lunatic Daring is written and produced by Chad J. Shonk and hosted by Chad J. Shonk and Nicholas Jackson. Music by Seth Hodowitz. And a proud production of Antithesis Audio. I think I ought to see a doctor. Well, why do you say that? I'm beginning to like the show. <laughs>